Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. I am here as always with Everald Compton. How are you, Ev? I'm still doing all right, mate. Been a bit of a tumultuous week in Australian uh, politics, one that I've rarely seen in my uh, 92 years. I mean, there have been other other incidents, uh, but uh, not quite of the magnitude of that. of uh, what happened with the Royal Commission because it gets right at the guts of how we run what you might call the welfare system uh, in Australia. So you and I might spend a bit of time, uh, this, uh, you know, on uh, on that. Now, there's a couple of things that come from it, what's found, and then what's the Corrupt Commission going to do, and then what happened in, what's the pack going to be in the, in the Fatten by-election Next week, yeah, but let's take, uh, you know, the report uh, uh, first, James. I mean, it, it, it was a very comprehensive report. No one can say that uh, they just, uh, you know, that, that it was in some sort of kangaroo point. It caught 900 pages and thousands of pages of evidence and personal testimony from uh, uh, from people and particularly some heart-wrenching stuff from people who uh, uh, got severe mental problems from it. In fact, uh, some took their own... Uh, took their own lives. Now, I think that it's... Uh, I, I, I haven't absorbed all the recommendations uh, that uh, have been made, but I think the chief issue is uh, why did this happen in the first place, Dan? Now, what's your view on the thing? Well, if we're talking why this happened in the first place, I think the answer is quite simple, really. And that answer is that, um, as it is in this country, it's acceptable, or at least it's seen as acceptable, to demonise and to um, harass and to attack welfare recipients. I think people who are on welfare are a class of people who it's sort of seen as okay and socially permissible um, to to oppress. I think people on welfare are seen as a class who um, it's seen as okay to take revenge on. We've got this idea of like, you know, the deserving and undeserving welfare recipient that We've got to crack down on all these evil welfare cheats who are bleeding the public purse dry and living the high life on the dole, buying, you know, they're on your and our taxpayer money buying grog and cigarettes um, and not providing for their children or whatever. And one of the big findings of the report was, put simply, that doesn't really exist. That's not real. Um, it's totally a manufacture to scare people into thinking it's okay to harass and bash welfare recipients. Uh, and the, the big thing that came out of the report was around changing the culture of welfare to stop stigmatising people who are on welfare, to, to take the, this idea away that if you're on welfare, you must be a bad person or a lesser person or a less deserving person of self-fulfilment. Um, and that's very yeah, important. That is the heart of the matter, we here in Australia, as compared with other nations, we have a very focused system of welfare where you've got to go to great extremes to prove that you're worthy. Now, here and there, of course, uh, uh, people have abused that in various ways, as has happened by the providers in the NDIS system milking the system, for argument's sake, rather than the, uh, the people who deserved uh, the money. So, so uh, we, we've got a we've had a very focused and nasty attitude to welfare and the solution comes back to what i've talked about on this program uh, our, our podcast before is that we've got to take the stigma uh, out of welfare uh, 
this is done if, if, if universal basic income uh, is established where everyone who's a voter in Australia uh, gets a a, a pension, a, a, a basic income in their bank account every month. And no one is then known as either a pensioner or, a, uh, a, you know, on the dole or a, a single mum or whatever. Everybody simply gets it. No one, and you wouldn't know who was working and who was not. And now some of the critics say, oh, a lot of people will sit down and do nothing. Well, that's a very sad indictment on Australia. Most people would say, well, if I've got a basic income, I can now get out and build on that and do things I didn't ever have the ability to do. And, and I think we'll find more people setting up small businesses because they've got a, a basic income coming in that keeps them alive while they take a risk on a small business. And I think uh, uh, we've got to take the stigma out of it and a universal basic income uh, would do that. So we then have a society where uh, we don't have the, you know, the, uh, the upper class and the lower class and as, uh, as Tony Abbott used to call them and Joe Hockey, the, the, the leaners and lifters and whatever. We've we, we got to get past that. Haven't we? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I mean, um, like, like you say, with universal basic income, what that does is it leads people to be more entrepreneurial. It leads people to want to take risks because they feel like they can take the risks because they won't be thrust into this oppressed welfare recipient class who is mistreated and chased to the ends of the earth by the government if they are. Um, what we've learned about this robo-debt scheme too is it targeted some of our most vulnerable people. Let's remember that a lot of unemployed people are either young people or people who have disabilities that don't qualify or can't receive heaps from NDIS. So there's a lot at play here that made this robo-debt scandal just so demonic in nature in terms of the people it was targeting and the way it was targeting them. Like you say, some, some people took their own lives because of these robo-debts. Um, and, 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 and the sinister part about this one too, James, is that it's had a very staunch uh, religious uh, element. I mean, it is well known around the parliament that robo-debt was thought up in the prayer room that the Christian right that occupy now, it's not a prayer room in the, in the ground plan of uh, the parliament. There's a room that, uh, that was allocated, spare room allocated to each political party. And so a prayer group in which uh, Peter Dutton was a member, but the leading members were uh, uh, Scott Morrison and uh, Alan Tudge and, uh, and uh, Stuart Robert and uh, uh, Christian Porter and whatever. And they would meet and pray that, the Lord would strike down all the evil people in the political system in Australia. And they honestly believed that the Lord had called them uh, to fix these uh, dull bludgers, these, these welfare recipients who were, in fact, sinners not using God's talents at all, and they were called by God to fix them. And I don't joke when I say that. That was the genesis of uh, robo-debt, and it's disgusting, isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. And that, that's part of the, the big worry when that Hillsong-style thinking started to pervade our government because part of that Hillsong religion is the, the believers are sort of chosen ones and are chosen ones to deliver um, God's grace to all the, the evildoers on the planet. Um, I remember Scott, Scott Morrison, in one of his most bizarre speeches when he was Prime Minister, talked about like warding off the evil one or something along those lines. It was it, There's a lot of pervasive, strange elements to it that really took hold 
um, under Morrison, and hopefully we'll have less of a stranglehold moving forward. But I see nothing to fill me with confidence that it will. More to the point, too, is that they knew it was illegal. I mean, it, the, the report found that there was no way um, Christian Porter, when he was social services minister, could have reasonably formed the belief that this robo-debt thing was legal. Um, the Stuart Robert was found to be citing false statistics as to the effectiveness of the scheme and the pervasiveness of welfare cheating um, to big up the scheme's effectiveness. Alan Tudge was found to know that things weren't okay and shouldn't, you know, that the, that the robo debt shouldn't have um, been allowed to continue. They were all found to know. Uh, and we've got now, we've got this Royal Commission report, which, like you say, public report, 900 pages or whatever. There's also a secret section of the report that hasn't been released for public consumption. And in that secret section, that refers people for civil and criminal prosecutions. Now, Stuart Robert has come out and said he is not one of the people who has been referred to a civil or criminal prosecution by that secret section. Um, others have not come out and said that. Obviously, just the fact that people haven't said it, they, they aren't up for it doesn't mean they necessarily are. Um, but we, we, if, if you caused as much pain, um, in, you know, I, I, the, the, the pain this robo-debt stuff caused, A, it was theft. It, 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 was, it was theft by the, the state perpetuated against our society's most vulnerable. Um, but, you know, if, if you if I break into your house tomorrow and I steal $11,000, um, I will be rightly charged, arrested and charged. But if you are the architect of a scheme which steals billions of dollars from our most vulnerable Australians by threatening them with jail if they don't pay these debts that aren't actually real um, and forcing them to then pay them, so far, the consequences have been scant, so I would really like to see these recommendations to prosecute taken up because what has happened is a large-scale theft uh, perpetuated against our most vulnerable people. Yeah, well, uh, there are some names have been leaked now. Now, I don't know how they got there, but in the media last night, the names were running and, and, and in it were, were Morrison, uh, Tudge and, and Stuart, uh, Stuart Robert and 17 public servants and the names have been bandied around on the media last night they're obviously a leak and and and, and probably got uh, some inside people who are attending i think it came from people listening to all the evidence and have worked out uh, uh you know these are the ones that are that are in the report and uh, and so uh, it would be criminal for instance if the public servants who administered robo-debt were the only ones who go to jail over this or would get fined. It would be criminal if the, arch the political architects uh, of it weren't fined. This comes to our National uh, Corruption Commission, and I'm not certain in my own mind whether the National Corruption Commission can not only get after politicians, it can get after public servants. Can it get after all of them, James? Yep, yes, it can. Yep, it, it absolutely can. Well, and so this is now gives the National Anti-Corruption Commission uh, a, uh, what you might call, a high-profile burst onto the Australian scene. I mean, they started on July 1, and then they've got to do some prosecuting and investigating, and, and this has given them a job that might last them years. 
you know, by the time they track all these people now, what, what concerns me, I mean, I'm concerned about the three politicians who did this, but why 17 public servants? And they're supposed to be the respectable people who tell politicians what they can and can't do within the law. They're supposed to be the respecters of the government system. Now, 17 of them got into a situation of, of, of corruption. I, I find that, that, that mind-boggling, and I think it comes down to the fact that too many public servants are political appointees in the first place. They weren't people who joined the public service when they were 15 and worked their way up the ranks. It seems to me we've got to politicise public service. Am I right or wrong? I, mean, I, I completely agree. One of the things I used to whinge about a lot on this show was how on the Administrative Appeals Tribunal um, under Howard, Rudd and Gillard, like maybe 8% of appointees were political appointees and under Morrison, about 35% of appointees to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal were political appointees. Now, bearing in mind the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is where you would go to have a Centrelink debt review, um, you've suddenly got 35% of appointees on there being Morrison ally political appointees for his tenure, um, reviewing the very same illegal scheme which he helped set up. Um, so when you've got non-impartial public servants, when you've got politicised public service, it is an absolute recipe um, for horrible, horrible things to be perpetuated all along the line because the public service, like you say, should be a robust safeguard against um, governments who try to do illegal things. Of course, we're all people here. Um, we all feel pressure. And we don't know the extent to which it was sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. If you were a public servant at the time and you tried to stand up against a government policy like robo-debt, which you found illegal or immoral, um, we don't know the extent to which, you know, there was pressure on you maybe to then stand aside if you didn't do that. Because, you know, people need to put food on the table. People need to keep their jobs. And we don't know the pressures that were facing some of these public servants from the higher ups um, who were turning the screws on them to implement this yeah. scheme. Um, it's just, it's, it's toxic well, it's all the way down. I was going to say, James, it, it's been a, uh, you know, a tumultuous event, this, and there's a chance for the Australian public to uh, uh, show their displeasure next weekend in the Fadden by-election. And when I say the Australian public, because it's only the voters of Fatten who are going to vote. Now, Fatten is a seat at the northern end of the Gold Coast, the trendy end of the Gold Coast, where, uh, whereas the tourist industry is in the southern end, the, the wealthy retirees that have come from interstate everywhere, and they're on all sorts of uh, excellent estates at Sanctuary Cove and, and Hope Island and all these places, and who traditionally you know, vote, uh, you know, vote liberal and now going to have to vote. And I'm watching the social media everywhere, there are people all over the social media sending messages to the seat of fat, and particularly to their Twitter and Facebook followers who live in the seat of fat, saying, on behalf of Australia next weekend, will you act as agents for the whole of Australia and toss the Liberal candidate out uh, to show that Australia can't do this anymore? And... and uh, I, I've, I've never seen uh, such a thing before where so many people are saying to the electors of that, you are the conscience of Australia. Now, 
these people are sort of just traditional liberal voters who you know believe the Labor Party is evil and the Liberals can do no wrong. Now, will they take revenge? Well, what is your view from afar there in Sydney, James? Well, I, I was going to say, I, I don't have boots on the ground in the Gold Coast to um, evaluate how things are going. Albeit, um, I have seen that the, the Liberal candidate is heavily backed to win by the bookmakers. Um, however far that gets you, I don't know. Uh, the, the dynamics of that seat to me, it seems like compared to, say, seats with where the teal independents have succeeded, a lot of which have sort of um, urban young people moving in and a bit of generational and demographic shift going on and lots of educated um, voters who are traditionally liberal but are socially progressive, I don't think that element is necessarily there in Fatten. It sounds to me like you, you've got more staunchly conservative retirees in this seat, um, which would make it more likely, I suppose, that the coalition holds on, um, especially given they've put up with Stuart Robert for however long, over after scandal after scandal. Everyone's got their breaking point, of course. Um, people would have said it was impossible for Wentworth to... Um, ever go to an independent, and then we look how Malcolm Turnbull was treated and the voters voted with their feet in their ballot boxes to punish the Liberal Party. And you would hope that um, in light of these robo-debt findings, uh, the voters of Fadden do the same thing. Uh, we'll find out in a week's time if they do. It won't really, no matter what happens, it won't really change the composition of the parliament. Labor has a majority no matter what. Um, but in terms of what it means for the extent to which we see voters keen to really take the LNP to task for the robo-debt scandal, uh, the voters of this seat at least, because, yes, yeah, Stuart Robert was one of the key architects of robo-debt and it's his old seat, we will see the extent to which they're keen to um, fire up and fire back. And also there's a couple of other charges against Stuart Robert that embarrass him. Now, look, these people aren't going to move over to the Labor Party. Now, Labor has a good candidate, by the way, in the seat that will probably improve the Labor vote. But most of these people couldn't bring themselves to vote Labor. There are four independents running in the seat, two of whom have a reasonable profile in the election, and those independents have organised their voting tickets that they all give their preferences to one another. So in the end, there's one independent candidate going to be the get the preference uh, votes and provided that independent uh, uh, candidate uh, can get in a position of, of coming second, uh, they could, in the initial ballot, uh, they could win. And so there's a there's a reasonable chance that these Conservative voters might say, well, we're certainly not voting for the Labor Party and, and it's not as if the Parliament is going to so we might as well give the Liberals a kick in the pants and we'll vote independent. And I think one of the independents is a lady called Belinda Jones, who uh, she and I follow one another uh, on Twitter, and it's quite extraordinary. She's been a, she's a single mum uh, who has been a community worker down there for a long time, and she has got on Twitter fifty three thousand followers. Well, she and I follow one another. Now I've got thirteen thousand, and she's got forty thousand more than me, and most of them are in that electorate. It's quite extraordinary. And she is the harness these uh, built up the followers over a number of years. And it could be that uh, she might uh, just be one of these bolts in the blue uh, things that come out and, and shake Australian politics uh, pretty hard. So you have a good close watch of it next weekend, James. I think uh, there could be 
a miraculous, uh, you know, Scott Morrison said he believed in miracles. Well, there could be one going to happen the wrong way for him on the Gold Coast. Ah, well, I'd, I'd like to see, I would like to see that happen. Um, I think... yeah, well, yeah, we ought to get the good and bad guys before our time runs out, should not we? Yeah, I, I think you might be right. So who's your good guy this week? Well, I think we've got to praise the Royal Commissioner, uh, you know, but we get back to Robert yeah, But the Royal Commissioner, Catherine Holmes, uh, did a very courageous job. I mean, if you watched her during the hearings and whatever you went, she had people like uh, uh, Morrison and, and, and Tudge and, uh, and uh, uh, Stuart Robert and, and the public, and giving her a rough time, almost accusing her of being a stooge of the Labor Party. I, I thought she came up with the goods in a very sensible and sound and, and courageous manner. Yeah, I, I think that's entirely true, and I mean, the tactics of Scott Morrison, uh, Alan Tudge and co, when it comes to sort of bullying and belittling women, are very widely known now. They're no secret. Uh, and I'm pretty glad that, you know, here again, we have another example of um, Scott Morrison and his band of merry men um, brought to heel by a woman who clearly knows, you know, ha has more knowledge of what she's talking about in her little finger than Morrison and his mates do in their entire bodies. So, um, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah. yet another win for just strong professionalism um, over Scott Morrison's boorish um, facade, I think. So my good guy of the week this week, it is Wimbledon at the moment. Um, and I would just like to, I know we're not the biggest Novak Djokovic fans on this show, uh, but I've got two. I've got two good guys of the week out of the Wimbledon world. The first is again just to give credit to Novak for how well he's playing. Uh, we, we talk. It, it, it feels like we've done this both Wimbledons we've had this show that Wimbledon comes around and we're both forced to admit like Novak is just an insane player. Um, but Roger Federer has also been in the news recently. I think he was just doing some sort of um, you know had like a celebration sort of thing. For his, and um, I had him in the royal box. Yeah. The royal family invited him into the royal box to watch the opening match. And when he went into the royal box, the whole crowd who were there because the royal family were turning up, the whole crowd gave him a five minute ovation. I think they couldn't shut him up when he walked into the box. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd just like to give a shout out to, um, you know, R Roger is retired and Novak is still going strong. Those two guys were a big part of, um, Certainly my childhood, watching a lot of tennis. Um, and, you know, a big part of your tennis watching time too, even though they've come around later yeah. in your life than they have in mine. So, um, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, my bad guys of the week are the gambling industry in Australia, James. There's been much debate uh, in, both in Parliament and in question time and in social media and elsewhere that the, the disease of, uh, of gambling where... You know, people do instant gambling on their phones when, you know, when an appeal is made for LBW and the test in England, they'll put 10 bucks straight away. They've got a system where you just press one button and they'll say, yes, he's LBW, and then they put in 10 bucks and if he's LBW, they're going to get 15 or something. And they sit there with their phones while you and I watch the cricket and enjoy it. They're sitting there uh, and taking a bet of who's going to bowl the next no ball and and all this sort of crap, and it is a disease uh, which we got because the gambling industry is allowed to advertise on these sports shows and say, you know, 
sign up with Easy Bet or Ladbrokes or whatever. The whole thing disgusts me greatly, Matt. Yep. No, I'm I'm totally inclined to agree. I think betting is so pervasive. I mean, I I watch the rugby league, as our listeners know. I watch cricket. I watch American football. I watch hockey. Um, and in, in in Australia, it's it's a uniquely pervasive thing. It's starting to take hold a little bit in America now, but the one thing the Americans do better than us is the betting advertising is nowhere near as pervasive as it is here. You cannot watch a single game of rugby league or AFL without the rep from the betting company cropping up and saying, here's our list of recommended bets. Here's who we think is good for first try scorer, first goal scorer. Here's who you should jump on. Uh, You know, please make your non-tax deductible donation to the good people at Sportsbet right now. Um, if you can. Um, so my bad guys this week, it's, it's less bad guys and more, I suppose, weird guys. Um, and it's just a story to watch that piqued my interest. We talked about uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin's long march to Moscow the other week and how yeah. the deal between him and Putin uh, was broken by Lukashenko, the president of Belarus. Uh, and as part of that deal, uh, Prigozhin would live in Belarus under Lukashenko's watch. Um, and it would all it was all happy families, you know, and all the members of the Wagner group yeah, yeah. who rebelled would be able to were, were free of prosecution and if they wanted to could rejoin the Russian army. This week, uh, Lukashenko of Belarus has come out and just said, oh yeah, Prigozhin isn't here anymore. He's back in Russia. Um, and I just found that very strange because like it, it's it's just the most bizarre thing ever, right? Like Putin hires this paramilitary group to do all his bidding all around the world. He sends them to his war in Ukraine. They get fed up. They get the shits. They march on Moscow. It looks like they're somehow going to get there. Then they just stop because some deal's been broken. The leader of the group gets immunity from prosecution and he agrees to go to exile in Belarus. And then like a week later, the president of Belarus says, oh no, he's back in Russia now. There's just something that doesn't add up. What is it, Everald? What is it? Tell me. Well, well I think it's uh, a move to remove Putin. You see, that fellow that runs uh, Belarus is a thug anyway. Remember, he, he framed the elections for years. He has... I, I'm, I'm reading a book on the Russian-Ukraine uh, relationship, a uh, very good book on money, a third of the way through it. But it indicates that that bloke would like the Soviet Union to come back again, the Belarus bloke, with him as the boss. Now, to do that, he's got to get rid of Putin. And somehow or other, this is all tied up with the Belarus bloke wanting to be the boss of a of, of a, a Soviet empire again, which Putin is not there. So he's doing his best while he pretends he's a friend of Putin. This, this the, the bloke who's in the market is somehow or other part of the deal to unstabilise Putin. And if he's gone back into Russia, it's got to be to try and undermine Putin and he's got to must have some idea he can do it. Otherwise, he's going back to get shot, isn't he? Yeah, I I didn't know that about Lukashenko and his ambitions, but you're entirely right. Like, it seems bizarre that Prigozhin would want to go back there given the price that could be on his head by some certain very angry people. Um, I think it's just like a watch this space developing story sort of thing. Well, it is. Well, we'll and we'll we'll talk about it again next week. And well, when we talk next Sunday morning, James, the voters of Fat and Relax will be going to the polls, so we won't have a result, but we might have a bit of a, a, a more clearer picture on that. And hopefully, there
out of this sealed report from Robo Dennis to who the people are who uh, the commission is uh, is going to get uh, uh, get after. And so it, it could be a, uh, it could be an interesting uh, an interesting week. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, it's always an interesting week with old Everald and young James, or so I like to think. Um, and thanks for listening, everyone. Good on you, James, and we've had a good chat, mate. We'll look forward to the next weekend. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Ciao for now.